Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. There isn't any one person that should make or break your film. You know, really, you have to kind of know you're in it, pace yourself. You're in it for the long haul. It's not one thing that should put you off your film if it's really, really what you want to do. Because your film is going to be a series of obstacles. That's all it is. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 50. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. A number of years ago, I found myself in the dead of winter in Chicago editing on a documentary film. It was for a Cambodian film called A Perfect Soldier, and it was produced by a Jonathan Lecoq, whose name you might recognize from an earlier episode of TDL. He and his wife Clara were on the program talking about their boutique post-production business called Coat of Arms, which they run out of Helvetia, West Virginia. In any case, this was how I first met and worked with Jonathan uh, in Chicago. These were the classic days of 12 to 15 hours of editing with you know, very few breaks except for meals and quick email checks. You know, I'd be showered, fed, and, and working on the edit by, by 8 in the morning, and, and I wouldn't really shut down the work sometimes until even 11 at night. Now, this wasn't a mandate that I'd be working this many hours or anything. It was mostly by choice. I was loving immersing myself in the Cambodian footage and, and, and trying to make a story out of it. Of course, I, I was also staying at the director John's house, and, and he was working similar hours at a desk that was really only about 15 feet from me. If he was going to be that dedicated to the film, I, I was sure going to do my damnedest to do the same. Now, I was there for about five weeks working on the edit, working six-day weeks, and I was accustomed to this kind of work when I was on an edit for the most part, so, so it didn't seem like a huge deal to me. The year prior, I was pulling a similar schedule on another doc edit. But at some point, early on in that third week, things kind of finally caught up to me. I found myself starting to get restless, even though I was super tired, just sitting at that desk hours on end. And we were basically up, uh, up high in an attic area, so it was pretty cold as well. Again, think Chicago in January. After yet another dinner break of probably ham and cheese sandwiches on some white bread, maybe chased down with a beer or something. Uh, one night I, I found myself alone in, in, in his family's kitchen and I suddenly got pretty down. I felt also kind of ill. I felt queasy from the, from the cheap, you know, not exactly nutritious foods I, I'd been consuming over the past couple of weeks. And, and my eyes were super itchy from a lack of quality sleep. Other than John and his family, I, I hadn't really spoken to anyone in a couple of weeks. So, so yeah, other than the internet, I, I felt completely disconnected to, to any real human interaction. And my body really ached, and, and, and it, was, it was super tight. And, and I was a runner, but, but I hadn't really run much in the two weeks since being there. Newsflash, running in Portland in January, not the same thing as running in Chicago in January. At 
that moment, I knew that I really didn't feel like going back up to the cold, damp attic and, and, and sitting back down in front of these bright screens to get back to the editing. And more than that, I, I didn't think that I could bring my mind back to making the story. I was completely wiped out. I was super low energy. And on top of that, a, a blinding headache was, was starting to settle in. So I decided to call a friend and colleague. And after listening to me tell her about my first world problems, she kind of laughed and told me she knew exactly what I was going through. This person was also working in the creative field. And then she began to give me some very practical advice that I was able to put in place immediately. She also sent me a book, which initially I thought was going to be a little too self-help or, or woo-woo for me, but, but I ended up really digging it, and, and I was up for anything. I, I cared deeply about the job that I was doing, and I knew that in order to keep doing it, or, or certainly to do it the way that I was capable of doing it, I was going to need to make some adjustments. So I went upstairs, and, and I had a heart-to-heart -heart with the director. And John's a super sweet guy, so, so I felt really comfortable doing this. And he totally got it, so, so that was helpful. And John would end up talking to Jonathan, the producer, and, and they both agreed that, uh, that uh, something needed to change. And they were able to swing a deal with a local gym for the next few weeks so I could at least pick up my running, um, which I was very grateful for. I, I was really missing the activity, the physical activity, and, and, and it allowed me to get away from the editing space for a bit and interact with the outside world be a human. Um, I also made, uh, started making a conscious effort to, to buy slightly healthier foods. I also began for the first time doing something I'd never done before. I started meditating. I started to sleep a little bit better and I would feel more refreshed in the morning. And the breaks that I would take, they, they seemed to have more intention, if that makes any sense. And they started to certainly feel refreshing themselves. And my work, the work definitely became stronger for it. The edit started to flow more smoothly. The story started to really take shape. It's funny, looking back, I, I realize now that, that I was just so used to, to powering through things in my life, you know, whether it was work, uh, through sickness, through relationships, whatever. I was simply brought up to, you know, kind of put my head down and, and just work my butt off and work through things. And and certainly in the case of film work, I absolutely loved the work. So so I didn't mind working all hours. I felt really alive during these times. And I never thought twice about taking care of myself in other ways. I never really gave much thought to the idea of taking care of myself. Until right about that time in Chicago, working on that edit, up in the attic in the, the dead of winter, that's when everything kind of came to a halt and, and I was forced to re-examine how I was living my life. My doc life, if you will. And I learned a valuable lesson from that period of my life. And I've since come to learn that so, so, so many other creatives and professionals they had to learn similar lessons themselves. And that's why when we come back from the break, we're going to take a look at five ways to nurture your doc life. I'm Chris G. Parkhurst. And this is The Documentary Life.
Did you know that each and every episode of The Documentary Life has its own show notes? I'm sure you've heard me mention them on an episode, but have you ever actually gone and checked them out? Because they often have some really nice supplemental materials that go in conjunction with that week's show. There are behind-the-scenes stills of filmmakers and their work. There are video clips. There's additional information on a show's topic, links to mentioned websites or resources, just to name a few of the things that you'll find within show notes. So if you haven't been regularly going to view show notes after listening to a show, you're actually missing out on materials that will further the week's discussion, thereby helping you best live and lead your own documentary life. So after today's show, go to thedocumentarylife.com and start delving into show notes for today's as well as past episodes. It's just another way to be a part of our Doc Lifer community. Before we get started on our five ways to nurture your doc life, I, I do want to acknowledge that we all have busy lives, we doc lifers. I mean, that's just kind of assumed, right? Many of us have day jobs, families, and, and our creative endeavors on top of all that. There often seems to be little time for other pursuits, let alone ones that might at first glance seem to be a bit selfish. I get it. Um, we have a one-and-a-half-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. We have the Barong Films business. We have the Documentary Life podcast. We have our own doc project, Elvis of Cambodia. But I am here to reiterate to you, if you don't pay attention to at least some of these things that I'm about to impart to you, you risk suffering down the line. And I'm not just talking your creative life here. I'm talking about your family life, your relationships, your own health, both, believe me, mental and physical, you name it. So consider yourselves hereby warned, my doc lifers. Do take heed. Without further ado, here we go. In no particular order of importance, five ways to nurture your doc life. Number one, exercise. Yeah, yeah, I know. Believe me, I know. Everyone preaches the importance of, of some kind of physical activity at some point throughout the day, every day. But hey, I'm certainly not going to deviate from this. And, and, and many of you already have some kind of exercise routine in your life, whether it's going to the gym, maybe going to yoga, running a few miles every day, or, or heading out to climb in nature after work. Um, but I believe part of your responsibility as a creative is not only to keep your mind in good working order, and, and believe me, we'll get to that in a bit, but it's to keep your body fluid and functioning to capacity as well. If this means forcing yourself to get away from the edit or get away from the script and, and, and go for a walk for 30 minutes, so be it. It's well worth it. And the cool added benefit to exercising is, is that it often spurs the brain to be more active and creative. It's called endorphins, people. And the endorphins are what often get us excited and, and thinking about our doc project. I can't tell you how many times I've been out for a run and, and I'm listening to a podcast or I've got some, some music that's pumping through the headphones and, and I'm suddenly, I find myself inspired by a new idea for the podcast or I've come up with, with a workaround solution to a problem that I've been having on an edit for, for, for my doc project. It happens all the time. For me, there's just there's something about lacing up the shoes. This is me personally. Lacing up the shoes, putting on the headphones, stretching, and, and heading outside for a run that it really starts to shift things for me uh, mentally in those moments. It's as if, um, you know, like I'm telling myself, okay, I'm now walking out, you know, I'm walking away from this work or, or walking away from this thinking that I've been doing, and, and I'm going to give myself a break outside. I'm going to move my body and, and just let go. And it's uncanny that the moment that you let go, the answers to any issues you've been having, whether whether personal or professional, they just start to come to you. 
It's not unlike meditation in this way, I suppose. Running certainly feels like a form of therapy for me, to be honest. At the least, it is. Um, I'm able to just let my mind go and and really just kind of be fluid for 30 minutes or or however long. Uh, I I would say don't take the idea of exercise lightly at all. It's not only important for your physical health, but I truly believe that there is a uh, a direct connection to the effectiveness of the creative mind with your physical body as well. Number two, and I, and I actually just mentioned this word, is uh, it's meditation. And I hope that I don't lose a few of you on this one. If you've never done it, it it's not a scary thing. It's not an uber new agey thing. Trust me, it, it, it's not some just something that half-naked dudes in India do or, or hipster yogis in San Francisco preach about. Meditation over the past decade has become, it's become a pretty mainstream thing in the Western world. Of course, countries in the Eastern Hemisphere have been embracing this form of mindfulness and self-reflection for centuries, and and we in the West are are finally getting around to it. Or maybe I should say we are finally stopping or, or pausing to it. Look, at this point, the health benefits of a meditation practice are, are pretty universally accepted. There, you know, there are currently over 3,000 scientific studies that have been done on the subject, and I suspect that, that that's only just the beginning. Those who meditate have 10 times more the concentration of those who don't. Um, they have 50% less chance of disease, 75% less chance of depression. And by the way, I think that's a big one for us creatives. Meditation lessens stress, worry, and anxiety. It enhances self-esteem and self-acceptance. It improves your mood and emotional intelligence. It improves the immune system and energy level. Reduces blood pressure. Better decision-making and problem-solving. Better information processing. The list goes on and on. You can do your own research on that. I'm just here to tell you that even, even just 15 minutes a day has been scientifically proven to do what I've just mentioned and so, so much more. And I'm here to tell you that meditation quiets the negative chatter, the self-doubt, the naysaying, the pessimism. And these can all be very real things in our doc lives. Living a creative life, a doc life if you will, often consists of many ups and downs, whether it be financial burdens, whether it be personal relationships, uh, major creative lapses, whatever the case is, there are things in our lives that greatly impact our self-value and our self-belief. And that directly impacts our own belief in ourselves as artists, as documentary filmmakers. I don't have to recite more proven scientific health benefits of meditation. Again, that's easily found should you, should you choose to do so. But I can tell you that I've personally benefited from the practice myself. It has given me more clarity in my life and in my films. It has allowed me to calm down in certain situations where honestly I might have before had an angry or otherwise reactionary response to a situation. And I can honestly say that for me personally, starting a daily meditation practice has without a doubt absolutely affected my life in very positive ways. Um, And that certainly includes uh, my creative life. It, It includes my documentary work. If you're looking for a primer, there's a great book out there by Sakyong Meepum called uh, Turning the Mind into an Ally. It's a joy to read. Uh, It's not super heady either. Uh, Super pleasant and and practical to read. There's also a documentary out there called On Meditation that's currently up on Netflix. That's a good one to watch for a primer as well. In fact, we'll actually be having a conversation with the director, Rebecca Dreyfus, later on in the program. Uh, Anyhow, I'll try and remember to put up links in the show notes for all of this. So, So yeah, meditation. Number three is family and friends. 
Now, I think we all know the importance of this one, you know, of having a community of loved ones that, that we see on a fairly regular basis. Doesn't mean we all adhere to it, of course. Hell no, we're, we're doc lifers, right? I've, been, <laughs> I've made mention many times on this show, you know, how we doc lifers, oftentimes, really by the very nature of independent documentary filmmaking, we can be working in fairly solitary situations. Certainly the post-production phase can be like this. But human beings, for the most part, we need to be around other human beings. This is also another one of those statistically proven facts you know, that we have a need. Our species has a need for love and support. That this sort of thing does, in fact, it does, in fact, impact our well-being and overall health. And, and I know that it's probably a total surprise, but Doc Lifers, we are human beings. And, you know, we too require human interaction. Look, there are the health benefits that I that I briefly mentioned, but but I'm not going to sit here. Actually, I'm standing. I'm not going to stand here and and refute health science data r- related to human interaction. What I will tell you is that as an artist, I think too many times we've been told um, or we see this notion that things like adversity or anxiety or even depression or solitude. Those kinds of things are what make the great artists of the world. It's this this romanticized notion that we need to be experiencing drama or hardship in order to um, to truly be an artist. I can tell you, man, that that that's all bunk. And I definitely speak from experience. I was that tortured artist type for at least a third of my life, and I can say that that a lot of it it was a huge waste of time spent on my own feeling sorry for myself and and really just generally doing the navel gazing thing. Um, if this has described you at any point in time, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know what I speak of. Take a look at any of your work or, or better yet, take a look at your journals from that time. You'll probably cringe. You'll probably cringe. I know I do whenever I read some of the old writings when I've been experiencing that uh, whole tortured artist thing. I remember editing on Bomb Hunters for like five months down in the basement of the director's house. And by the way, yes, I'm well aware that I seem to edit on people's projects in their basements and attics. <laughs> Reason number, I don't know, 562, why you need a budget, guys. Anyhow, I remember immersing myself in the uh, the uh, Cambodian footage, and it was not long after coming back from Cambodia. And the content in the story was, to say the least, at times, uh, heartbreaking. A lot of destruction and devastation from years of civil war. Um this material, on top of the fact that I was down in that basement six days a week working those, you know, super long hours, this really didn't make uh, make for a, a, a very happy Chris Parkhurst, and and certainly not a very agreeable one to be around. But I remember my sister, who's who's one of my best friends. The following year, she 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 was talking about that time period, and she's telling me that that I was a bear to be around, and, and that I exhibited, you know, a lot of anger and emotion during that time. I know that hindsight's twenty twenty, but 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 honestly, looking back, I can safely say that that most of the the self pity, the the starving artist thing was, it was pretty unnecessary, man. I don't think it fueled my edit at all. I I really don't. If anything, I'm sure it it negatively impacted some of my editing choices. I mean, I remember there were scenes where the director kind of pulled me back a bit because I was I was being too heavy handed in in some of my approach and. And, and I was too angry in my story, if that makes any sense. Um, I'm pretty sure that if I had uh, surrounded myself with loving people, or maybe even more appropriately, um, not shut myself out and away from, from my loved ones, 
um, and allowed them to support me, I personally would have been a lot better off. And, and my work probably would have would have come a bit easier, if not a bit more objectively, if that makes sense. In any case, I'm sure you get what I'm trying to say here. A support system via your family and your friends is it's exactly it's actually a very needed thing for us doc lifers. Sometimes we film some difficult things. Sometimes we work a lot of hours. Sometimes we we just need someone to give us a fresh and proper meal or or tell us a good joke. I have come to learn the hard way, believe me, that that these in fact are the things that feed you as an artist. Sometimes a break from the intense doc work is exactly what you and your doc needs. Number four is diet and nutrition. I just mentioned a fresh meal. Yes, I am now going to talk you know, briefly about the virtues of, of a proper diet and nutrition. Believe me, I'm sorry if that annoys you. You can always skip on to the next one. That's okay, absolutely. But diet and nutrition, diet and nutrition is, is, is a real and important thing. Too often, we artists, you know, we risk our own well-being for the sake of the art. I get it. I've done it a zillion times. Uh, many times we have we have little time between shoots, um, or we have a less than satisfactory budget, and and so we find ourselves maybe in the McDonald's drive-through checking out the dollar menu and and loading up on carbs and tricky meats and and soda. You know, it's a quick fix. It's it's cheap. It does the trick, right? Uh, but you've all seen supersize me, right? Sure, it's it's a bit extreme. We're not we're not all taking our meals at Mickey D's for a month at a time, but but nonetheless, there is an important message here. Pardon my French, but the shit's not really good for you. You've got to take care of the temple, is what I like to say. Um, we already discussed the mental component, you know, when I talked about meditation, and uh, but the more obvious component might be your general physical health, which doesn't just mean exercise, of course. It it also it also includes diet and nutrition. Eating some proper foods and drinking some real drinks can go a long way for you. Um, stay hydrated. Bring lots of water to set. Uh, consider a green juice instead of something with a lot of sugar in it. And, and, and I'm not talking about juices with added sugar. I'm, I'm talking about be aware of, of even the kinds of fruits in your juice that may be of, of higher glycemic content. Eat foods that aren't processed. Otherwise, you risk blood sugar levels spiking then dropping while you're working. Um, but look, it's one thing if you hit the fast food up for lunch or on the way to set. It's it's one thing if the, you do this yourself um, while you're on your way to work, um, or while you're on your way to the gig, Wh- whatever. It, it's up to you. But if there is one thing you absolutely positively cannot mess around with, it's feeding your crew, especially a documentary crew who may be working for, for cheaper rates, if not even for free. You cannot buy your crew fast food. Um, and don't bring coffee and donuts in the morning. Coffee, yes, because everyone knows there simply is not a world without coffee. Actually, I drink decaf, but don't tell anyone. Um, but no donuts, please. It's it's embarrassing, and, and it just doesn't say the right thing from the very outset of the day. So yes, when it comes to your crew, the least you can do is show them the respect of a decent meal and, and snacks. Um, I realize that there isn't exactly a budget for a craft services person, but you would do well to get some snacks that aren't pure sugar-based. Um, and won't have your crew crashing midway through an interview. We used to have this craft services person um, in Portland on commercial shoots. And for the life of me, I could not understand how or why she kept getting hired on jobs. She would show up with things like Twizzlers, Smarties candies, donuts, uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, or toaster oven mozzarella sticks. 
and and she'd serve these things to a professional crew. And this is in Portland, Oregon, where practically everything is organic or, or grass-fed or, or grown hydroponically. <laughs> she even, um, we even started to call her, she got a nickname at some point. We started to call her the Candy Clown. And uh, yeah, I, I really don't know how she kept showing up on jobs or getting jobs. Crazy. Anyhow, I, I do I do digress. Um, show yourself and your crew some respect by showing up with healthy snacks and a good hot meal for lunch. It's important. And rounding out our five ways to nurture your doc life is watch documentaries. Most of you probably already do this, I'm sure, but it's also an easy one to forget. We're busy people, and we're working on our own documentary films, quite frankly. Um, I actually have to make a very conscious effort to watch docs. That, that may seem strange, but the, the truth of the matter is, is I'm either A, busy working on my own doc, or B, working on this podcast, or C, being with my family, or D, sleeping. Um, I truly barely have time to read anything, let alone devote two hours to watching a film. Uh, but I, I make myself do it. Uh, I literally have to schedule it out. Um, because it's important. Otherwise, I'm making films or, or talking about the making of films without maybe knowing or seeing how others are doing the craft. Nowadays, it seems like a, a new piece of equipment or a unique way to tell a story, it happens monthly, right? It's happening all the time. So if I'm not watching other people's docs, um, I'm not taking in how the craft is being done by my peers. And, and I'm potentially missing out on some great opportunities for ideas and approaches. So many times I've gone, I've gone months without seeing a film. Then I sit down to watch one and I find myself immediately inspired, whether it be by the story or how the story was told, or later on after I've done some Googling, I learned the story of the filmmaker. Whatever the case, I'm left feeling more informed and inspired to work on my own project. In fact, a number of times I've been faced with a, a particular problem in my own work and then I watch something that I watch another film and it, and it totally shifts my way of thinking kind of into a place where where suddenly I'm I'm able to come up with a really nice creative solution to my own problem on my film and that and that very likely that wouldn't have happened without the process of watching a film and I say process because I believe that the actual process of watching a film in itself apart from the actual film even the process of watching it can be a very important practice for us filmmakers. It allows us to see how things are, well, how things are seen. And there are lessons to be drawn from that. We need that reminder that someone will actually be sitting down, hopefully a hell of a lot more than someone, um, whether it's in a theater or on a TV at home or on a laptop, someone will be taking in our movie as an experience. And so it's good for us to be experiencing that experience on a regular basis ourselves. So if you're not already doing this regularly, and I'm sure that most of you are probably way better at that, better at it than, than I sometimes am, um, make a conscious effort. Do make a conscious effort to be watching other documentaries. Now, to, to revisit the five ways to nurture your documentary life, number one was exercise. Number two, meditation. Three, family and friends. Surround yourself with family and friends, that is. Four, diet and nutrition. And five, watch documentaries. Now, these are just five ways that I came up with. 
I'd love for you to take a little time and come up with some of your own suggestions. I bet you've got some good ones that the group would love to hear. So either send me an email at chris at barongfilms.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at barongfilms.com. Or make a comment in the show notes for this episode. Or maybe even better yet, get on the Documentary Life Community Facebook group and, and share some of your own ways that you nurture your own documentary life. It is now time for the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. This one comes from a Jamie, and I'm not sure where he is currently located. But in this email, he is replying to an email where I asked him about his engagement with his documentary subjects community. He says, Hi Chris, thanks for replying to me. Very kind of you, sir. I have actually started social media for the film. We began after I released the concept trailer that I branded as our launch one and started our Twitter and Facebook presence. You can search for Masters of Mahjong and see it in a few places, but here's the Facebook link. In terms of the Mahjong community, my producer is a Mahjong fanatic who has spent time playing it in many countries and has her ear to the ground constantly with what's going on. We wouldn't be able to do this movie without her network. And it once again proves that documentaries must have great access to contributors and the subject to be able to delve deep enough into the story for it to be appealing and relatable. I myself reach out to contributors on a regular basis to touch, to touch base and keep the conversation alive while there's downtime between either filming or probably more accurately put between finding money for filming. Haha, <laughs> totally get that one. You're absolutely right about the importance of this though. We both said the community's acceptance or rejection of the movie was, was crucial to the success of it, and we're building slowly but surely. Then again, back to the business side of things, my approach is such that I want this to have mainstream appeal. It's a niche community with a nice hobby, but their efforts, struggles, highs and lows will hopefully all translate to a cinematic language anyone can understand. Let us see. Love the work you're doing though, Chris. Please keep it up because I'm all for engaging in your valuable insight. I think you're the premier doc podcast out there, so rest assured I'm spreading the word about TDL. Thanks again. Well, Jamie, thank you certainly for spreading the word uh, about TDL. I appreciate that. You know how this uh, this documentary networking thing works, and um, and that's really a bit of what we're trying to achieve here with the program. So so thanks for the love, brother. Totally appreciate that. Um, and thanks for sharing a bit of your story. Um, I watched your trailer for your Mahjong documentary, and I loved it. For anyone interested, uh, Jamie's film website is www.mahjongmovie.com. And of course, I'll try and remember to put a link up to it um, in, in, the, in the show notes. Now, the reason why I chose to read Jamie's email as opposed to maybe uh, someone who had a specific question um, is that I think there's some really valuable thoughts here. Uh, we've talked on the show before about the importance of, of becoming engaged and, and engaged and connected to your community. In effect, building an audience uh, well before the film is even shot, let alone finished. It sounds like Jamie and his producer have done just that. Of course, it, it does a, a help that the producer was previously connected to the doc subject, for sure. But but by the sounds of it, uh, the two have continuously engaged with that community, um, You know, whether it be through social media or, or simply through the various shoots that they've been on. Um, and, and, you know, this sort of thing works on more levels than just building a community and audience for one's film, certainly. Um, uh, without the time and effort and, and networking that these two have done, their film would probably most likely end up a, a film that just sort of touches the surface of the subject, if that makes sense. 
Um, I'm sure that it was through the constant and consistent engaging with the subjects of the doc and as well as fans of Mahjong, you know, that these filmmakers were able to make true inroads with not only the story, but the very story of the lives of the people involved. And that's a huge thing for us um, as doc lifers. It takes time to build these relationships, but, but in the end, uh, it, it certainly will be well worth the time. Anyhow, thanks again for the email, Jamie. Uh, I'm excited to see how this film turns out. It looks pretty fun, and, and I will definitely be checking it out. If you would like to offer up some feedback of your own or, or give us some topic or guest suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. So please email me at, at chris at barongfilms.com. And you too could be included in a future Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week segment. When we come back from the break, we talk with award-winning doc filmmaker Rebecca Dreyfus. Our shared conversation with the Doc Industry guest segment up next on The Documentary Life. When I first came up with the idea for the Documentary Life podcast, I was hoping to reach out and start connecting with other like-minded individuals and maybe create a community where doc filmmakers could learn from and get inspired by one another. And I wanted to have conversations that weren't just about the technical aspects of documentary filmmaking. I wanted to also be having discussions on what it meant to live the life of a creative, in our case, as doc filmmakers. And to my pleasant surprise and amazement, that is precisely what has happened with both the podcast and our community group. And now, we've expanded upon that idea with the release of Living Your Documentary Life, a program that breaks down the ways in which you can, through the creation of your art, live a sustainable, creative, and fulfilling documentary life. In Living Your Documentary Life, we remove the obstacles that you currently have in your life that are holding you back from making your documentary film, whether that be financial obligations, your immediate relationships, or your mindset and confidence in your abilities. You will gain perspective, build momentum, and create a lifestyle that serves you creating your best documentary filmmaking projects. If this sounds like the kind of doc life that you want to be leading, we'd love to help. Just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and let's get you living and leading your best doc life today. Rebecca Dreyfus, welcome to the program. It's exciting to have you on, on our conversation today here in The Documentary Life. Cool. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rebecca, I, I think right out of the gate, one of the first things I, I will ask you is how did you first, how did you first find yourself into this world of documentary filmmaking? How did that happen for you? The first film that I ever wanted to make uh, was about my dad, who um, was what you, he, he uh, had to flee Germany because of the war, ah. um, because of World War II. And he wound up in Shanghai, which is a kind of an unknown story. So a, a lot of people don't know, but there was actually a, a Jewish ghetto in Shanghai. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I wanted to uh, make a, a film about my dad's experiences, but like a lot of people who had been through those kind of experiences, he didn't want to talk about it. Uh. So, but I sort of understood from, you know, the time I was young that my dad had a story and mm. that the story had fair, great power. At least it did to me as a kid. Like there was sort of this story yeah, going right. on around and, um, and it had a lot of power. And although I didn't figure out how to, 
get together with my dad and make that film because he really didn't want it. It sort of opened the door for me to realize the power of story and to realize like there's a whole world of stories out there. So Mm. while I didn't get to make my dad's film, I realized that this was something that could be really meaningful in, in terms of just millions of stories that are out there. Right, right. Why documentary film as the format with which to tell his story? Why was documentary so intriguing to you? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, it, documentary, you know, I, I have dabbled in fiction and I actually have a fiction script I'm working on right now. Hmm. But I think one of the things about documentary that has worked for me is, is actually the process itself. So, in other words, you know, when you're making a movie, a fiction movie, most of the time, although of course there's exceptions, you write a script, you have to raise the money, you shoot for a certain amount of days, and you're that's kind of done, and you you um, you're kind of dependent on other people, and that you have to raise the money to right. do it, and you do it all in one fell swoop. Yeah. Although of course there are exceptions to that, as I said. But with documentary, you know, the, the process is really different and the, you can kind of explore your subject matter through shooting. There's no reason why, particularly in this digital age that we live in, that you can't just start shooting. Yeah, that's right, and, right. And see where it leads you, which, um, you know, so much of documentary, I think, is just being open to where something's going to lead you and you don't know anyway. Hmm. So I, I tend to be very kind of independently minded. And so the idea that I could have an idea and just start shooting without needing permission from a lot of other people <laughs> was appealing to me. Yeah, right, right. So how long after having this idea that you wanted to pursue perhaps um, documentary filmmaking or at least do your first documentary film, how long between that and and Bye Bye Babushka, your, your, your true first feature documentary film? So I, so I made a film in film school. My thesis film was a documentary. Mm. Um, and so that I kind of got my feet wet. It was about a woman uh, married to an inmate in, in the Sing Sing Correctional Facility. <laughs> and that was very much a verite kind of exploration. And then um, I guess between that and Five Eye Vavishka was like maybe like five years or okay. something. Like I graduated from college and then um, I I was hired to go. Um, I was hired to to shoot on a film in Russia for somebody else's film, and I wound up spending the summer in Siberia and just oh. became. Um, and then it sort of turned out to be around the same time of you know this complete bursting open of what had been the Soviet Union, and was now just wow. this upper grabs kind of place. So it was very fascinating to me. Um, so I guess, you know, there was like five or six years in between, um, graduating and then kind of starting that journey, which, you know, like most of the films, at least that I've been involved in, they take a long time. (laughs) That's one thing I kind of always warn younger filmmakers is like, you know, or they'll come to me and they'll be like, oh yeah, I'm going to have it ready for some deadline of some festival, which is in like six months from now. <laughs> right, I'm like, submitting oh. for Sundance in <laughs> September. I'm like, I, maybe, if you're lucky, maybe next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I find the process has is, is been 
lengthy and that those, you know, people will sometimes ask me like, well, how long did that film take you? And I'm always like, well, it depends when you start counting, you know, do you start counting when you first had the idea mm. do you start when you first, you know, had a shoot like it, that, that process is very, um, you know, long as far, as far as I have had an ex that experience with me. <laughs> Be patient, right? Yeah. <laughs> and also like having people, you know, like having people say no, you know, and then kind of coming back around and a door that was closed may yeah. open at a different place and, and realizing that that process is, can be very surprising. Right, right, you know? right. Well, we, and we talk a lot about that on the program is this idea as doc filmmakers that, yeah, this thing doesn't happen overnight. And in fact, the most sort of genuine, um, genuine relationships we see on film when we watch a doc is, is that happens through the course of time. Like that takes time to build that relationship between you and your subject. And often that's months, if not even years, um, sometimes before our subjects can really become comfortable with having, you know, somebody else in their life that's filming them all the time. And, and I think that that's an important thing to note that you're saying there, Rebecca, is that, that it does take time. And part of that is, is, is really, um, needing to be patient because you have to realize that you're in someone else's life and you're filming their life and it takes time to build that relationship. And also like whatever your initial intent was or whatever your, the initial thing that interested you in the story could evolve into something else. <laughs> Again, yeah. something we talk about is that that's pretty, and I think you were alluding to this earlier that that's, you know, it's, it's a bit unique to documentary versus narrative in that, you know, oftentimes, you know, we have these ideas for our documentary films and, 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 and myself included nine times out of 10, the idea or that I had at the outset is often not what I end up with with a film at the end. And it's it's this kind of balance that we have to have as doc filmmakers to, you know, sort of we have our vision of what the story is or what we're hoping the story will be. But then often these sort of different paths reveal themselves along the way. And it's you have to be able to not only be willing to make not only to to make certain choices, but be open to the fact that there are choices and different avenues that the film will take us down. Completely. And and sometimes it's very uncomfortable, you know, mm. because because you had an idea, you have to kind of, you know, be like you're saying, be open. And if you're open, means you have to kind of maybe let go of an idea that you had. Um, and that's hard to do. And sometimes things are happening in real time, you know, like something will happen to the person that you're shooting all of a sudden that's totally unexpected and you have to be ready to go with that. Um, and it's happening quickly. And um, can, can you think of anything in your own work, Rebecca, where that sort of instance has happened for you, where, you know, an avenue sort of presented itself and, and you had to make a decision on, on maybe changing course from, from where you thought you were originally headed? Yeah, for sure. It's happened multiple times. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe one sort of obvious example of that is, um, so I, I made, which you, you may have checked out since you know about Bye Bye Babushka, obviously you did your research. <laughs> um, I made a film called Stolen. Of course, a big one, yeah. A, yeah, which is about the art heist at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And in the course of making that film, I just was sort of interviewing people and wasn't really sure what the film was going to be about. Mm. But to me, you know, the main characters were sort of the paintings and 
you know, Isabella in a way. Um, <laughs> uh, but then I came across this investigator who was right. sort of himself very <laughs> obsessed with paintings. And if you see the film, one thing about the in investigator is that he's he's disfigured. Oh, yeah. I mean, immediately on screen, it's, it's a very striking image, right? It's a very striking image. And so when I met him, he first of all, you know, and I actually have had this happen to me more than once. He acted like he was waiting for me and the crew to arrive and that it was sort of almost assumed that we, now we were making the film with him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and how did you navigate I, that one? <laughs> that's the thing. It was happening very quickly. And yeah. all of a sudden he was calling me with a million ideas. Oh, man. And I had this moment of pause, like, can I really have this person be featured in my film because he was so heavily disfigured right, right. and you know, was that going to be distracting or was the film suddenly going to be about, you know, this guy and this disfigurement and that wasn't really what my intention was. But as I started to think about it and, you know, let it sink in a little bit, I realized like, this is a man who's disfigured and, and, you know, visually striking and that he doesn't look normal. Mm. Um, and he is spending his life, you know, searching for kind of beauty and oh, these lost things, you know, and that there was some kind of tension in that that was really beautiful. Um, but it took me a little while from the time I met him and him instantly kind of calling me with, we should shoot this, we have to shoot that, yeah. what time can you meet? Um, and me, and I, and it wasn't like, you know, if you watch the film, he's really the main character of the film. Oh, yeah. But wasn't like I met him and decided to make the film. I decided <laughs> to make the film and then I met him and it was like, okay, are you going to shift gears and have this person be the main character? And then if you see the film, in my opinion, he makes the film. You yeah, know? right, right. But that was something that I had to, you know, kind of the film was guiding me. And I think that, you know, I'm sure you've had this experience. Mm. If you really get in it with a film, and I think this is true of fiction or nonfiction, mm. Like at a certain point, if it's authentic and, and there's something creative really happening, like that creative magic that happens that you don't really have control over. Yeah. yeah. The main thing you have to do is let it guide you, you know, and be willing to surrender to that. The Gardner case has intrigued me since it occurred. These robbers were people that were associated with you. Two of them are dead now. They died of natural causes. Not really. There is always a possibility that someone will come forward. As doc filmmakers, there's a certain amount um, of, of letting go of, of, of your ego at some point, especially when a story takes a change in the way that it, uh, that a way that it obviously did with you and stolen. And, and it just made me think of ego there. Like that you have to be as a filmmaker, it's a doc filmmaker in particular, I think be willing to, to, yeah, be open to these avenues. Like, like we were talking about. And, um, and that's not easy for, for, for creatives, uh, like all like like ourselves to do at times because we come in certainly as directors we come in um, with visions that we have for our stories and and there's lessons to be learned there um, on our end in terms of letting go of that ego if, if that makes any sense. No, I mean let's face facts. Directors for the most part are a bunch of control freaks. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So, 
So having coming into you know something with wanting to mold something or shape it in your in your vision, and then something happening, which is like actually no, you're you're gonna go make a left turn here as the film's dictating, yeah. or are you gonna try to impose your will? And you know most of the time, most good documentary filmmakers will go with it, but it is sort of at odds with this whole idea of you know your vision and why people are attracted to being directors. Totally. So that's something I think we all struggle with. While we're while we're you know on the topic of stolen now, um, I would be remiss not to mention uh, Albert Mazels, who is brought on as a lead camera on Stolen, and uh-huh. and from what I understand, there's a relationship between the two you that's developed, um, perhaps maybe even in in a mentor sort of way, and and my gosh, like like how does that happen? Of course, you know Albert <laughs> Mazels is legendary, right? So so please yeah. tell me how that how that came to be for you. Um. Well, so Albert, um, so Albert's a Russophile, mm. or he was, as I should say, he passed away, I guess, two years ago. Mm. Um, so Albert was a Russophile. Uh, the very first film that he made, he went to Russia, you know, he and David went to Russia, and they were able to get access to, oh, like, a mental hospital in Russia. Of course, of course, right. So, which is, like, unbelievable, because, I, I mean, I don't really know off the top of my head what year it was, but it was the 50s. Oh, yeah. So, sure America getting access to anything in the 50s was, you know. <laughs> unheard of? <laughs> I mean, beyond unheard of. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't know what Albert's magic was, but it sort of started there, and then he, and then he had a very strong affinity for Russia. Hmm. Um, and so he, I forget how somehow I got connected to him when I made Bye Bye Babushka. Yeah. I, somebody had, I can't remember. Somebody had introduced us and I showed him the film and he kind of fell in love with the film. Right. Um, And we sort of became friends around our mutual love of filming in Russia. And, (laughs) um, and then it turned out like those was back in the days Albert famously lived in the Dakota and I lived right near the Dakota. I lived one block from the Dakota. So we kind of, you know, had all this stuff in common. We became friends. And then he was like, what are you working on next? Right. And I told him, you know, that I had this idea at that point. It was to secede for this, this the Gardner theft movie. Yeah. And it turned out, you know, that he was from, Albert was from Boston. And then... Um, there's also this kind of strange coincidence that Albert's, this is very funny, but Albert's wife's father was a protege of a man named Bernard Berenson. Okay. Um, and Bernard Berenson is, you know, sort of a famous person and is sort of creating art history as a, a valuable line of study. Uh-huh. The turn of the last century he was very famous and he had been very instrumental in helping isabella gardner collect her art wow okay the turn of the last century so not only was albert from boston but his wife had this direct connection <laughs> with isabella gardner perfect <laughs> yeah exactly so almost kind of like Harold, the main character in the film, who I mentioned earlier, Albert was also very like, okay, when are we shooting? Let's oh, go out and shoot. I was, was going to ask you that. If the... <laughs> so, you know, as a young filmmaker, I was a little bit like, you know, talking to my producer, and I were like, well, Albert wants to shoot with us. Yeah. Like, what do you think? And it was like, yeah, I guess that's a good idea. Right. You're going to say no, right? <laughs> yeah. We're going to say no. And I have to say that. You know, it was magical having Albert. Albert was just a magical person to have on a shoot because he had this quality of just, you know, kind of making the room be sort of 
delicious and open no matter who you were filming or whoever was in the room. He sort of brought this level of mm. emotional openness, which mm. is obviously why he's such a genius. Like, yeah. But I mean, that's a, a very intangible thing. You can't, expl- I mean, he's a great cameraman. There's no denying his technical and creative skills of cameraman, but he also physically as a human being embodied something very special that he brought to the room when he was there. You know, a lot of listeners reach out to me asking about this idea of, of a mentorship. And so I'm curious, having had an experience, obviously on, on a much a, um, uh, I don't want to say a, a, a level of, you know, I mean, there's one thing to have a typical mentor, right, that we have. And then there's another another level of, of meeting somebody who's who's a legendary sort of in the field, in particular, in this case, documentary filmmaking. But but I wonder if you could recommend, you know, to to someone who's who's a budding doc filmmaker, somebody who's set to make their first doc. How do they go about how do you find a mentor or do they just find you? What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think mentors are incredibly important. Um and can really change your trajectory as a filmmaker if you find the right person, as certainly Albert did for me. Um, I think, I mean, the, the only thing that sort of immediately comes to mind is to find a filmmaker who you are in love with and you're yeah. in love with their work and figure out a way to share your work with them or, you know, and the thing about it is you have to, whether it's filming or, or trying to, you know, get a relationship with somebody that you think could be helpful to you mm. is you have to be very determined, you know? So if you're going to reach out to somebody who might be of note, they're probably not going to answer you right away. Oh, totally. Right. Right. And if you're going to be dissuaded by that or get your feelings hurt by that, mm. you know, forget it. Don't bother. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, you know, kind of come at them from six different ways and then write them a letter, send them a film, try to find out someone who maybe could directly connect you, a friend of a friend. Like you have to kind of come at it from different ways. Okay. Um, I mean, and obviously another great way is a, is a professor, if you go to film school, is to meet somebody, you know, professor of film school. But not everybody goes to film school, so that's not available to everybody. Let's move on a little bit towards your film on meditation. Uh, how and why? I'm assuming that you had a connection to the subject itself. Now, now I've recent, I've only, actually only recently, I've only recently seen on on meditation, and uh, I, I certainly have a lot of thoughts on the film. Um, and and so I'd love to hear from you because, by the way, I I really appreciated this film on a number of levels. Um, and so, absolutely, and and so I'd love to hear. What was your connection to the subject? How did the project on meditation happen? Um, well, you know, it's really very basic, which is that I was trying to start a meditation practice and I was struggling. <laughs> I was having my joke about it. I say is like, just ask me to do anything but sit quietly by myself. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? <laughs> so I was. I had been. I had been kind of exposed to a little bit in yoga class. I was doing a lot of yoga and I had been, you know, in yoga class, sometimes there'll be meditation. And I had very quickly some very brief but deep experiences in yoga class. Yeah. And I got interested in it. And I started trying to do it. Um, and I was immediately kind of frustrated by it. So I, I really started by just wanting to hear how other people did it. Oh, wow. And it's such a kind of private interior thing that mm. I felt like, you know, we always talk in documentary about issues of access. 
Right. So I wanted to access how people sort of cultivated an inner life as opposed to, you know, just get access to them as human beings. I wanted access not only to them, but to their inner life. <laughs> um, and so, well, there, there's, I'm going to stop you here for a second because there's access to people who can speak upon a given subject. And then there's access to the type of people that you brought on to, to speak to on the right. subject. Um, right. and, and these are, these are big names in the industry. These are celebrity mm -hmm. names. Um, I guess I'd first ask why, why the decision to go with recognized names like this? Um, and then how did you get the access to all these guys? For me, like choosing subjects is very intuitive. Mm. Like I meet people and I just have a sense of like, oh, I would love to film that person. All right. That <laughs> my, my documentary instinct is like, oh, that person, I, there's something for me to learn or yeah. there's something, some layers I'm really interested in peeling back. And, it, and I couldn't really describe what exactly makes that bell go off in my head. Um, but that's always been a very strong um, component for me in right. filmmaking is just the attraction to filming certain people. So the first person that I really, really wanted to film was Peter Matheson. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Snow Leopard was huge for me when I was when I was doing a doc work in, in Nepal. Uh-huh. So I just got it into my head that I was going to shoot Peter Matheson. Nice. Um, and Peter Matheson absolutely did not want me to shoot him. Oh, wow. So if you want to talk about determination, oh, I spent... Oh, let's hear that. Let's hear a little bit about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I spent two years or maybe a year and a half. I can't remember exactly. It was a while ago now. I spent a long time pursuing Peter Matheson. And Peter <laughs> Matheson, he wouldn't email. So I wound up getting in a snail mail correspondence with him. Fantastic. Very appropriate. Um, yeah, which was the only way to communicate with him. And I just kind of wouldn't give up. And he really was like, you know, there's nothing to talk about about meditation. All you have to do is meditate. And I can't, there's nothing to say. Oh, wow. Words are useless. Um, but I was just, you know, again, very, very determined. So after much back and forth and kind of insistence, um, we, we wound up getting an appointment and we went to his house. And, you know, the funny thing is then when we got to his house, he opened the door and he said, oh, I forgot you were coming. <laughs> hey but it goes back to this you know thing about determination like if i was going to take no for an answer i would have had a no you know a no a long time ago but yeah. um sometimes i joke that no is just the beginning conversation that was the opening conversation um so so it sort of started like i don't know it was maybe the snow leopard or reading peter's work or i had a friend who had him as a professor at yale so I knew a little bit about him and it just between his work and the way he spoke and the way he looked like that sort of combination of things, just there was something in me that was very, very determined to yeah. capture him. I'll bet. So, so that was one person. And then I think from there, I realized that I was interested in shooting people who were in some way accomplished mm. because they had used their meditation practice to do great things in the world, which as filmmakers, we all have aspirations to do big things. In the right, world, that's right. 
So I didn't just want people that had cultivated like really deep practices, but I wanted people who had cultivated deep practices and used it to good end to be out in the world. So I didn't really want people secluded in the monastery. Mm. I wanted people that had done you know good things in the world and okay, okay. wanted to know how their practices had um, had helped them do that. Uh, and then I also was very interested in um, in you know sort of a crossover audience because. You know, there's people that are interested in meditation and yoga, and then there's people who it's not really on their radar. So bringing in some kind of notable, I call them, you know, notable people, I think opened up the audience a little bit, or at least that was my intention. I don't know if it did or not, but that was my intention. I was accepted to the American Film Institute, and I was given an opportunity to make my first feature. I was given money. I had all the equipment I could dream of given to me. At this point, I remember standing and looking at this wall, thinking I should be the happiest person on earth. But I looked inside and the happiness was just a dance on the surface. Below, hollow. I said, whoa, no inner happiness. Looking back, I felt I had a weakness. I wasn't self-assured, even though I had great desires and, you know, ideas. I had anxieties like crazy, like everybody. I had a kind of a tremendous anger toward my first wife. I wasn't, you know, dealing with a full deck. A favorite segment, which took me entirely by surprise because I absolutely had my own biases and assumed that I would not at all appreciate uh, what this guy had to say. Um, but man, did he surprise me. And now I have a new, I feel like I have a different appreciation for him is, is David Lynch. <laughs> David Lynch really, really took me by surprise, by surprise. Uh, because I loved his words. I loved hearing he was he's very thoughtful how he speaks and how he went out one day and and he realized that I have all of this this success coming my way um, as a, as a filmmaker and yet I am not a happy person and and I think a lot of people, a lot of us have struggled with that thought. and so I just felt like it was a very genuine down to earth sort of thing and story to tell and uh uh i really loved that moment with, with david lynch for sure yeah he was wonderful he was really wonderful i felt really lucky to have him how is how is meditation how is meditation a part of the creative process well, I have to say, first of all, I, and when I get in these discussions, sometimes I get a little bit uncomfortable because I, I don't in any way claim to have some sort of spiritual advancement or, you know, totally. I'm not a total like yogi and meditator and I go in and out of uh, practice. Like I had a very strong practice for a while and then my mom passed away and yeah. that kind of de diverted me off my path. I'm just getting back into it again. But I think, you know, one of the things that I learned is that, you know, there's all these different traditions of meditation. Right. And they all sort of serve different purposes or you, you, people, I think, get attracted to one form of meditation or another for different reasons because they all can 
give you different benefits. So I, through my journey, wound up being most connected or most attracted actually to, to Vedic meditation, which is TM, which is what David Lynch does, um, which is a mantra-based meditation. And I do think that particular meditation style um, of all the ones I investigated does give you the most direct access to your subconscious. Um, and you could certainly see that in David's work, right? Mm. I mean, the famous for, you know, some weird subconscious <laughs> thing arising in his film. That's right. Um, and I do think that that kind of Vedic meditation um, brings you sort of into a place in your consciousness that you can't go any other way. And so I don't know if that's why I was most attracted to it, um, but it does kind of bring you into a river of creativity when from from a sitting that kind of sitting practice that I have found useful in in thinking about ideas yeah. or being more open in a moment to an idea that I might not have been open to before I had that practice. One thing I have to say also about this is uh, that this journey is I was extremely naive going into it, mm. you know, in terms of the different traditions and how many thousands of types of meditation there are. I was really interested in people yeah. and their personal journeys, which is my interest in filmmaking. Um, but once I got into it, I realized like, oh, this is, you know, it's like sort of saying you're interested in sports. It's like, well, what kind <laughs> of sports are you interested in? You know, when you start talking about meditation, like, well, what kind of meditation are you interested in? So, yeah, but uh, it's funny because you can use that as a doc filmmaker really well to your advantage, sort of if you're, if you're sort of, if you're sort of naive or, or this sort of idea of a naivete to a subject, that can work to your advantage because you can ask questions that maybe you might not ask if you, if you, sort of knew about the subject or you you quote unquote like knew not to ask right it, i think you can use that to your advantage you you might be even more open um you know if you're if if you're less familiar with a particular subject i agree with that i kind of think it's a balance between doing your homework and not right because you have to do your homework of course you do have to do some homework but i agree with you like i like kind of coming in as a naive outsider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I do like that. And because also when you talk to people who are deeply immersed in something or expert on a subject, yeah. very often they know so much that they're missing the most basic parts of what the discussion is. Mm. And so, so you can, um, you can kind of help back it up and make it more accessible because you're just trying to wait, wait on a base. Wait, what are you saying? Yeah, right. What mean? And they're already so advanced that they've skipped over the first, you know, 30% of what the subject matter is and gone to a more advanced level. And I'm, I'm good at sort of being like, no, 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 wait, what does that mean? Yeah. That's interesting that you say that because I can make that sort of analogous to some of the sort of the film work that I do, a lot of the doc work that I do tends to be stories out of Southeast Asia, um, predominantly Cambodia and, and Nepal. And having, and Cambodia has kind of become a, a home away from home for me since I started doing work in, in back there in, in 2004. And one of the things that I have to remind myself often is I have become so used to certain images and seeing certain things in that culture um, that often it's it, it, it I have to remind myself that 
my viewers, most of them have never seen, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing and that, that I sort of take for granted. And, and it, I kind of have to, as a doc filmmaker, I have to remind myself often that things are not, um, things that I may be accustomed to seeing um, are, are entirely new things. And so I have to kind of keep that in mind and, and sort of use that framing when I, when I'm doing film work uh, over there in particular in Southeast Asia, if that makes sense. It kind of reminded me of that. It totally makes sense. Yeah, for sure. What I'm going to do now, I think Rebecca is I'm going to throw a number of questions your way and just kind of give me your sort of your, your immediate responses to these. And these are going to be very applicable to, you know, a doc filmmaking community. Okay. Can you think of three pieces of sort of key advice to someone who, who may be starting out as a doc filmmaker? They're working on their first doc. What would what are three pieces of key advice that, that you might have for that first time doc filmmaker? Okay, so the, the first two I think are connected to each other. So one is, you know, be determined. If you really want to make something you know, find a way to do it. Don't take no for an answer. Or if you do really find a door not open that you wanted to get access to, you know, find another way. So yeah. be determined. And then that's connected. My second piece of advice is that if you're really going to make a film, especially if we're talking about feature docs in yeah. particular, there isn't any one person that should make or break your film. Now, obviously, if you're trying to make a film about one specific person, that is a different story. Right, but if you're right. Trying, if, if you're if you're interested in the subject matter or some kind of journey, you know there isn't there shouldn't be one particular thing that that makes or breaks your project. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, really, you have to kind of know you're in it. Pace yourself. You're in it for the long haul. Yeah. It's not one thing that should put you off your film if it's really, really what you want to do. Yeah. Because your film is going to be a series of obstacles. That's all it is. <laughs> No, it is. And it's finding it's, navigating your way in and around and over those obstacles. Right. Right. So if you're looking for a reason not to make your film, you're going to find a hundred of them. Oh, there's plenty. <laughs> yes, there are plenty. What are some key tools or resources? And this could be books. It could be people. It could be other films You know that you sort of continuously come back to as a doc filmmaker. I think it's just watching doc films, mm. you know, watching them and figuring out what's interesting to you and what kind of filmmaker you want to be. You know, what are you interested? Is, is the content more interesting to you? Is the style more interesting to you? You know, kind of, and constantly be evolving and refining that. So I would say watching other people's films, whether that's contemporary ones or, you know, old, you know, classics. Or old Albert Maisel's in Russia exactly. documentary films. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Is there a moment where you thought, yeah, this is it. Okay, I've arrived. I'm a documentary filmmaker now. And if so, when was that moment? I don't know if I can agree. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't arrived yet? Oh. It doesn't feel like that? <laughs> well, it just it feels like, you know, I think if you once you make a couple of films and yeah. then you go back and look at them, you don't have any, you're sort of like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so so I, I kind of, once I'm done, really put them behind me yeah um and and then every time i start out again even though i have obviously developed certain skills yeah. and certain methods for working i do sort of feel like every time is a clean slate um and i don't sort of feel like oh i know what i'm doing i never exactly feel like i, I well, you know in some ways i do feel like i know what i'm doing more than i did you know whatever 15 years ago but 
I never completely feel like, oh, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I know what I'm doing. That's I don't, great. I don't. That's like that. <laughs> no, I love that. I love that answer. That's that's fantastic. As we wrap up here, to uh, one thing that I did fail to to mention is that um, how can we see some of your films on meditation? I know is playing Netflix right now. How can we see some of the other films? Yeah. Yeah, it's on Netflix. You can also stream it off my website on meditation.com. Awesome. Stolen, uh, you can you can get it off my website, stolenthefilm.com. Okay. And I will go ahead and put links up on our show notes for sure. Thank you so much for being on the Documentary Life Podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Rebecca. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live. Mm-hmm.